Welcome to the Church Basement Podcast. Today's topic is the second in our two-part series on community organizing. Grab a cup of coffee or tea, strap on your running shoes, or pick up your knitting needles or crochet hook and join us. But first, let us introduce ourselves. I'm Don Miller, a member here at Central and the producer of the podcast. And joining me today, since Pastor Amanda is still away, is a special guest. I'm Deacon Bonnie, a member at Central, and uh, I serve as Deacon here. Excellent. Okay, we're talking community organizing, and I encourage anybody who has found us to go back and listen to last week's topic as well. We're going to continue on talking about organizing like the challenges and other bits of this pretty fascinating topic that I really had no real prior knowledge of. So we were talking last week about what it is, what's for, and why would you do it? Let me ask you, are there certain issues that lend themselves to community organizing more than anything else? Or what kind of issue would you organize around or for? One of the keys to community organizing is community. Sure. And so figuring out the direct impact on a particular group of people is key. So lots of our issues in the world that we would like to maybe have impact on or see change can seem so huge, so nebulous, so climate change. What part of Earth does that not impact? Yeah. And how can one person make any sort of lasting impact on something that huge? Exactly. And so it would be identifying the specific shared interest, the specific pressure for a specific community that you would organize around. So if the community that you are working with happens to be a coastal community that is struggling with rising sea levels because you're one of the Marshall Islands and you're actually needing to quickly look at how do you move your whole community Mm -hmm. off the island within the next five to 10 years because there is not going to be livable land there. That would be organizing around their shared self-interest. Okay. What does our actual survival look like? So yes, the topic might be climate change, but what's the impact for this particular group of people? So one of the terms that's used in community organizing is cutting an issue, meaning you take the big thing that you're all concerned about and you really figure out how to move it into an actionable item. So if you can find that, then you're in the realm of community organizing, even if your issue is huge. So the American banking system, could you use community organizing on the American banking system? Well, what part and what group of people? You know, is it the housing bubble of 2008, I think it was, Mm -hmm. and the overinflation of value, then the crashing of the bubble, and then the evictions? So what are you actually going to try to change And who was impacted by that? Are you going to change lending laws? Are you going to change eviction processes? Are you going to try to build in a safety net because there's no affordable housing in a city like Portland? So if you went through that and you lost your home, there's no lower tiers of being housed that are actually available to you. You just move from housed to houseless. 
because we have such a skinny, tiny third tier of housing, which would be the kinds of things where people who are severely economically challenged can still afford to have shelter. Mm -hmm. So those large topics, you still have to find the individual connection. That seems like the hard part though, right? How do you even identify where you can make an impact and how you can help yourself and others, especially for some of these seemingly overwhelming issues? That's where the listening is the driver. Okay. The kitchen table is the answer to the boardroom. Okay. When you think about community organizing. So that's why relationships are the whole thing. You need to be in relationship with people in order to be able to hear what their pressures are, in order to break down the isolation that tells us that we are experiencing something alone because we deserve it, because our, our systems tell us that, especially our economic system. So you start with, you know, do you have four neighbors that you actually know well, who you might have sat for at least 45 minutes four times this last year and had coffee with? You know their names, you know how long they've been in the neighborhood, you know where they work, those connections, and they build. So your PTA, that's community organizing. Okay. That's a community, a set group of people. They have a a shared self-interest, whether that's making the school, you know, the best school it can be or whatever the particular issues are there. And that is done through those conversations. And from there, you end up, you know, not only shaping, say, the actions of your administration in that school or individual teachers, but you might also be impacting uh, the school board and eventually legislation So these things stack up, but they start at the smallest level. They start with you and I at the kitchen table having a conversation and discovering a shared self-interest of, oh, I heard about that too. And that happened to me. Or I watched that happen to my son. And then we start talking about, oh, I wonder who else has had this experience. Or I wonder who else cares about this. And then we do some research and we find what next steps might be. So it's a process of sort of working and building capacity. And it's very much centered around building that capacity for the long term, building community resilience and building community kind of muscle memory Mm -hmm. of how do we work collectively? You know, we're not just... 400 households in this neighborhood, each individual having their own experience. If there's sewage in the streets, it runs by my house too. Yeah, but it still seems like an uphill battle for a lot of it because I think society keeps trying to remind us that we are individuals instead of a collective. And it's hard to sort of pick your head up and look around and go, oh yeah, I'm not just the only one. Relationship is resistance. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you see this as a growing thing? Is community organizing something that has picked up and more people are doing these days, or at least in the 10 or so years that you have been involved? I've certainly seen it grow in the Lutheran Church, in the ELCA. Okay. I've seen it grow not just in, you know, it's not unusual for something to exist in Portland or even in our synod or our region 
and be not part of the larger experience. Sure. You know, like, oh, those are cute buzzwords from where you're from. We don't <laughs> use that here in Minnesota. Sure. But actually, the ELCA has done a lot of work on using community organizing as a paradigm for faith in action. The Lutheran tagline is free in Christ to serve the neighbor. How in the world can you serve the neighbor if you don't know them? Mm -hmm. Stop guessing what other people need. Our well intentions are wasted efforts if we are not in relationship when we put them on the ground. So That's fascinating. Do you see differences in how this community organizing works when you're talking smaller communities versus if you're trying to do something for a change at, say, either the Senate or the state level? Or is it always still the same process? The process isn't the same, but I think the value system that drives it is. Okay. So the largest community action I've been part of like directly part of and had input into was a campaign that was in the end organized primarily by MACG, the Metropolitan Alliance for the Common Good. And the name of the campaign was like TIFF to 50. And TIFF stood for an acronym related to property taxes. And the end goal of this was that like 67 million more dollars would be allocated in funding for affordable housing. Okay. And that was, I believe, a statewide issue or... It was bigger than a small community. Yeah. At at minimum, it was Multnomah County. Okay. I think it was Multnomah County. That sounds correct. Now it's coming back to me. And so the number of organizations that we needed to collaborate with was much bigger and we needed them to be organizations. We needed them to be a bunch of small institutions organizing together to poke the big institution, that being the Multnomah County funding structure, to make a decision that wasn't going to please the development arm. You know, so the influence, Mm -hmm. the lobbying is if we structure it this way, there's more profit for property investors. And so we want the laws to look like this so that people will continue to invest because people only invest if they can actually make money. Sure. Well, where's the pushback to that that says not all housing should be a commodity. And at some point we need to be invested in actually sheltering humans more than increasing the bottom line. And to have a big enough pushback, we needed organizations Mm -hmm. like MACG, like unions, like the whole synod, not just a congregation, to have the kind of capacity to push in that setting. Versus the smallest community action I've been part of that had a tangible outcome, like it wasn't $67 million. It's a flashing street beacon that allows people to cross a very busy intersection to get to school safely. Sure. And my co-organizer and I organized that all with individuals. So the shared interest was that we were all neighbors living on one side of a busy road. And most of us had kids who needed to get to the K-8 on the other side of the road. Mm -hmm. And 
those things are actually really expensive. <laughs> like way more, like a million dollars plus. Wow. Yeah, it's some crazy number. But we were able through accessing other parents at the schools, through accessing some of the religious organizations uh, in the neighborhood, talking door to door, neighbor to neighbor, to bring people out. And we were able to identify a possible source of funding, which is the Safe Routes to Schools. Sure. Connection there through the county government. So we contacted the Safe Routes to Schools liaison and we had her out. We did something called a walking school bus where you get everybody to come mm-hmm. at the same time and walk together to school. And we had the principal come to that and we had the liaison from Safe Routes to School show up. So it's this whole process of like, see, see how many people there are who are invested in wanting this see the danger of the intersection. Mm -hmm. And then it took continually pursuing the follow-up, the long follow-up to finally get a yes. And about two weeks ago, for the first time, my youngest kid walked herself to school. And that would never have happened without that beacon. Oh, that's fantastic. Because it's a wicked street and my kid is not tall enough to be seen. But that beacon works. So that's pretty fulfilling. But other than the fact that a number of us had kids at the same school, there was no uniting institution pushing for this. There were, you know, 100 individuals who lived in the neighborhood saying, yes, I need this. I'm a wheelchair user. I can't cross that street. No one can see me. And the only way to get on the bus going that direction is if I cross over to the other side. So finding people with the same shared pressure, the pressure is how can I access the other side of the street, and the same shared self-interest. I would like to see improvement. And if we collectively ask our systems and tell our systems that this is what we need, then we can get it versus, well, I'll write a letter or I'll try calling. But if it's not collective action, our systems work systemically, Mm -hmm. meaning that no one person in our larger systems is actually needed to make them continue on the way they are. That's how systems work. You wind them up and they go. But we often try to have individual solutions to systemic problems. We have to have systemic solutions to systemic problems. And that's where operating as a collective comes in. Say there's somebody who's listening to this podcast or this series, and they're wanting to start community organizing and to get involved and do things. How would you recommend somebody to start doing community organizing? One of the interesting things in my mind about community organizing is that it is super hands-on. Okay. So there are books to read and there are organizations that exist just to help shape organizers. There are industrial organizing organizations like the IAF, which is the Industrial Areas Fund. Okay. So there's union organizing, there's kind of different kinds of organizing in the faith-based organizing. There are things like Gamaliel and there are organizations that can give you materials to read and they can do trainings. I've been to a local training with, you know, Mac G, the Metropolitan Alliance for Common Good does a local training, I think quarterly where you can come and learn about organizing. And the first time that I went to organizing training at Mac G Honestly speaking, I didn't feel like I got a lot out of it. Okay. 
because I hadn't had the exposure. And it, it's sort of like going to a class and not having a filing system. Okay. And so there was this information sort of dumped and I got it, but I didn't get it because I didn't have anything to hang it on. Like, I understand the words you're saying and conceptually I sort of get what you're getting at, but I don't have a framework because I've never seen this. I've seen things kind of like it, but you know, I guess I could read about ballet too, but that wouldn't mean I could get on the stage. Sure. And so I had this great privilege of shortly after that being engaged in organizing at the same time I was doing most of my learning. And so I would learn something and go try it, mm-hmm. or I would see something and think I understood it. And then I'd go learn about it and I'd understand it better. But it was very hand in hand because it's very human. It's very lived, you know, because it is rooted in relationship, because it is rooted in our stories. It doesn't work well as a simply intellectual exercise. There's an embodied piece of it of you actually have to be connected to what's happening. How do you keep people involved if you're working towards something that doesn't necessarily have a specific end goal? it's cutting the issue. It's finding those attainable points along the way. Okay. Because there does need to be a sense of movement. Sure. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Otherwise, why would you stay in something? Right. Especially if it's hard. (laughs) Community organizing sounds hard. (laughs) It can be. It's certainly harder than sitting on my couch and watching Netflix. Yes. Or (laughs) believing what advertising tells me. Sure either that I deserve things or that I don't deserve things, but that one way or the other, the solution is action I take with my checkbook, Mm -hmm. that that's the only thing in the world that matters. And so, so much of what happens in organizing moves people from consumers to constructors. Okay. You're not just passively receiving what's happening in the world, what's happening to you, you become someone who can actively build. And it's part of why I love faith-based organizing because I think one of the painful impacts of the last baby boomer age on in the church has been this emphasis on consumer church. We go church shopping, we find the church that works for us and we show up and we consume religious goods and services. And then we're sent back out into the world with our tanks filled but we don't often get moved from consumer to leader, consumer to kingdom builder, and having that ability to pivot from what can the church do for me to what does the world need from us is a real opportunity that organizing gives you a framework for. Mm -hmm. Is burnout a big issue for people who do a lot of community organizing? Yes. (laughs) I mean, I figured... How do you either get around that or is it okay to just say, I need a break and I will get back to it? Both. Okay. So yes, recognizing when you, I've referred before to being communityed out. Mm -hmm. You know, there've been times when I've been like the treasurer of the PTA and the president of the church council and on the neighborhood association board. and, And suddenly you realize that you're embedded in leadership roles all over the community, and it becomes heavy. 
And sometimes you have to step back and make room for others uh, and invite other people to step up while you catch your breath and focus more on the listening than on the leading. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just need to sit under a tree for a good two weeks and that's all right. So, you know, self-care as much as that gets treated as a cheesy thing is a real thing. And the other piece is, again, you know, I think it was in our last conversation, I talked about the sacredness of the relationships, that the relationships themselves are at least par with whatever your end goal is. Mm -hmm. Part of how you don't get burned out is that you don't become obsessive about getting the wins and sort of have these peaks and valleys based on the reward of actually having cataclysmic change happen because change happens so slowly. Mm -hmm. You can engage in this long campaign and then end up waiting. The campaign to get the intersection light I was talking about, mm -hmm. two and a half years later, the light went in. It's <laughs> a long end game. If I was waiting to celebrate until that light came on, I would have, I mean, we've had people who participated in that campaign who moved away. Sure. Who like aren't even here anymore. So I'm glad the light's there, but I'm even more glad that I know my neighbors more deeply. Sure. And that they learned that there are ways to shape the world around them. That's the reward is when people no longer feel like helpless recipients of the world as it is but know that they can be active agents in creating the world as it should be. Do you think the pandemic has helped people get into community organizing in a way they wouldn't? Or has the pandemic, because of the isolation that we all tend to feel, made it worse? Again, I think both. I look at the work of BLM. Mm -hmm. And certainly, there's you know, there's all kinds of drivers as far as why is this time such an active time for people coming together collectively to call for racial justice. Mm -hmm. But one of those pieces, and I'm certainly not wise enough to know how much, but one of those pieces is the pandemic has put us in a place where we can't look away. Sure. Yes, we see the epidemic of violence on black and brown bodies, but it is not new. No, sadly, no. Yeah. Why then were we able to have well over a hundred nights of sustained protest public action? Mm -hmm. And I think maybe the pandemic was part of that because we didn't run off and entertain ourselves as a relief from the pressure. Cause we do that. The news is ugly and hard and it hurts. So I'd rather go to a concert tonight. Sure. All the ways that we just kind of get through. And some of those outlets that help us put off the pressure of the Holy Spirit to step up and take action got disrupted by the pandemic. And suddenly we didn't have anything to hear but the Spirit in our heart saying, you know, this might have something to do with you. Maybe there's something you can do. See, there's all these people. You could be one of those people. So in that way, I think the pandemic has freed us up. I also think we all went home for a year mm -hmm. and maybe we know our neighbors a little better. Not every one of us, but some of us, mm -hmm. because we didn't go all over. We didn't disappear to a distant workplace for 12 hours a day. We went outside 
and we took a walk and we saw our neighbor's garden and we said hello. So those are all things that start those relationships. That's where you get that opportunity for those 45 minutes of coffee where you actually know your neighbor and can hear their stories and what the spirit is whispering amongst you for how to create the kingdom where you are. My neighbor and I planted a pandemic garden last year for the food pantry down the street. Nice. Yeah, we wouldn't have done that if it weren't for the pandemic because we wouldn't have been aligned in what we were up to. Mm -hmm. I have sun in my backyard. She's a much better gardener than I. We're both around. Yeah, and so I was, normally I would have been like, well, yeah, you can, but I can't really help because I'll be gone off and on all summer. And she wouldn't have had the connection to the neighborhood food bank that I have. And so for us, it worked out because I could water occasionally and she could make sure it grew and I could make sure it got the hungry people. And that was an opportunity that, you know, we've been neighbors for almost 20 years that took the pandemic for us to do that. Oh, that's lovely. Okay. That leads me to my last question. Where do you see the biggest need these days for community organizing? It's not the size of the need, it's the depth of the relationships. I think that's a disappointing answer or a hard to understand answer in our objective driven world. You know, I'd like be easier But your if point I is just... we need to talk to people more, talk to those around us and build those relationships more. Is that yep. that's what I'm getting from your answer? Yes, because then that's when the tangible, actionable items come in and that's what defeats the sense of futility and helplessness and hopelessness that keeps us locked. As long as every issue just seems too complicated and too big, I can't stop world hunger. I don't even know how to make a one-time big impact on Portland's houselessness, but I know how to get together with 20 or 40 or 200 of my neighbors and find something specific and actionable that we can do. You know, Pastor Amanda uses the phrase a lot, one step closer to the kingdom. You know, may our work today make us one step, bring us one step closer to the kingdom. Mm -hmm. I don't really think about the kingdom as a destination either. And so anything that seems to put it in a proxemic measurable distance is a little strange to me. Mm -hmm. And it's more of an orientation. The kingdom is right now. Um, That's what I see in scripture. It's not the ticket punch at the end of the line. It is God's invitation into living in that reconciled state that Jesus came to invite us into. And each of these things, while I may not know about one step, because it's literally a spatial phrase, you've adjusted that orientation. You've pointed your heart just one notch further into that kingdom vision, that world as it should be. Yes, I see the world as it is. I'm certainly no Pollyanna, but I certainly do believe in the world as it can be and that we can each day take actions, both large and small, that bring us into the kingdom, into what looks like what is described when Jesus says the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like. And so when I look out in my neighborhood and I think, hmm, The kingdom of God is not like hungry people without Mm -hmm. anything to eat. The kingdom of God is not like people with no shelter. So if I take this one small action, does this look more like the kingdom? Yes. In this moment, it looks more like the kingdom. Okay, then I can do that. Excellent. 
Deacon Bonnie, it has been an absolute delight to talk to you for these past couple of weeks, and I hope you will come back and join us again. Thank you for helping us learn a little more about community organizing. And I want to thank everybody for listening and joining us. You can find us on iTunes. You can email any questions you have to us at podcast at centralportland.org. And you can also find us on Facebook and leave comments and suggestions there. And again, please remember, God loves you no matter what.